0: Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori and I'll be your host. You're here for another episode. This surprises me immensely, almost as much as my gratitude. I am so thankful that you take this time to indulge my fantasies. This podcast has actually made me feel alive again, and knowing that there's other people out there who enjoy it as much as I do makes it all the more better. While preparing these episodes, I have found new rabbit holes. Even though I have over 60 pages of notes, I'm still managing to find myself chasing that white rabbit. My well-articulated notes have become a disarray of links with, go down this rabbit hole later. Remarks. I've read Plato's works so many times that I've even rewritten it and organized it. While working on the episodes for Lake Triton, I found something really exciting and I want to share it with you. Still, nonetheless, I feel like we should finish Plato's works before going down these rabbit holes. Each morning, I open up my podcast information and smile even when just the listening has gone up by one. So good job, all it takes is one. In many ways it feels like each morning I sit down at a table and start working on a crossword puzzle or a jigsaw puzzle with you, my friend. I'm still learning the editing software and I'm still learning this whole podcasting thing. I'm still learning how to adjust the mic and use it appropriately. So thank you for hanging in there. This episode was pretty painful to do. It is probably my least favorite and the most like work, but still, it needed to be done. There's still so much more to learn along the way, and hopefully you can make it past this episode. The last segment will start us on our journey, though, to finding out how big the Plain of Atlantis was. For this episode, I will use the help of only one of my favorite authors, Plato a classical Greek intellectual who was our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. We are currently in the midst of the Olympics, and I couldn't imagine a better time than this to go over the history of it. The Olympic Games have deep roots in ancient Greek mythology, It's hard to determine the origins, but we do know that some form of athletic games have been around since before written history. Depiction on the walls of Minoan temples are usually some form of funerary athletic games, such as bull jumping, chariot races, gymnastics, and wrestling. Egyptian and Mesopotamian art depicts athletic games and funerary events, but nothing regular like the Greeks. There are two stories on the origin on the Olympic Games. The first story is about Dactyls, Onesus, Eusus, Epimetes, Perinesus, and Idus. They started racing at Olympia to entertain the newborn baby Zeus. Dactyls was crowned the victor and they placed on his head an olive wreath. This has later become known as a symbol of peace. The second story is quite a bit longer. This claims that the origin of the Olympics is the story of Pelops, a local Olympian hero to whom he would later lend his name to the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese was a term given to the Greeks who lived within the peninsula in the geographic region in southwestern Greece. The story goes a little something like this. Animus was the king of Pisa. He had a daughter named Hippodamia. Do you remember what hippo stands for in ancient Greek? That's right. Great. A horse. Right. If only there were a race of women who preferred to an unusual degree the use of horses in their wars, which people seem to be named after strangely. Anyway, Enemus went to the oracle, and the oracle predicted that King Enemus would be killed by his daughter's husband. King Enemus crafted a plan to try and circumvent his own death, so he declared that any young man who wanted to marry his daughter was required to drive away with her in his chariot. King Enemus would chase the suitor in another chariot and spear the suitor if he caught up with them. The king's daughter fell in love with a man called Pelops and wanted to marry him. So, Pelops plotted with the king's charioteer to replace the bronze pins with wax pins before the race. So, King Enemus actually had horses that were gifted to him by Poseidon, and because that they were supernaturally fast. So, during the race, the wax melted as intended, but King Enemus fell from his chariot and was killed. Pelops, congrats, married the king's daughter and became king of Pisa, and organized chariot races as gratitudes to the gods as purification ritual for King Enumus. Rumor has it that it was from this race that the Olympic Games were inspired. Awesome. let's take a moment to notice that in ancient Greece, it's the women's line that gave the men a claim to the throne. This practice is called the sacred feminine, and it was after the Bronze Age collapse that the tradition changed. You can see this practice with Helen of Sparta as well. Most historians have placed the first official Olympics to be 476 BCE. Archaeological evidence has also confirmed that the first Olympics started around this time. According to Andrew Biner, a columnist for TheOlympics.com, he says, The Olympics were named after Mount Olympus and were held in the rural sanctuary of Olympia in Greece's western Peloponnese region. It was a hugely sacred area featuring picturesque olive tree plantations and a giant statue of the god Zeus. The Temple of Zeus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was reported to be 43 feet or 13 meters high. By the second century BCE, the main stadium held approximately 45,000 people who stayed in tents around the building all free male Greek citizens were entitled to participate in the ancient Olympic Games, regardless of their social status. Several emperors even took part, as well as farmers. There was a separate festival, called the Heraean Games, dedicated to the goddess and wife of Zeus, Hera, and it was created for women. Athletes who broke the rules during the Olympics were publicly whipped, and one of the rules was that you had to compete completely naked. Prizes were awarded to the winners, which began with a wreath made from the leaves of the sacred olive trees at Olympia. Victors were also allowed to erect a statue of themselves in the sacred Altus Grove, the sanctuary of the gods, at Olympia, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, although only the wealthiest could afford to do this. Before I can continue with Plato's work, I have to explain their units of measurement. The ancients used a unit of measurement called a stade. A stade was a standard length of a, wait for it, stadium. You know, like an Olympic stadium. To complicate matters, the Greek stadium was different from the Egyptian stadium, which is different from an American stadium. Here's a quote from Paul Christensen, professor of ancient Greek history at Dartmouth College. It's hard for us to exaggerate how important the Olympics were for the Greeks. The classic example is that when the Persians invaded Greece in the summer of 480 BCE, a lot of Greek city-states agreed that they would put together an allied army, but they had a very hard time getting one together because so many people wanted to go to the Olympics. So they actually had to delay putting the armor together to defend the country against the Persians. Hopefully, you watched 300 and the classic line of, THIS IS SPARTA. I guess those Spartans didn't really have to compete, I mean they were already pretty well known. So when classical Greek writers need a unit of measurement, they compare buildings by the size of the stadium in Olympia that hosted the Olympic Games. The physical landmarks of the Olympic Stadium are 212.54 meters, or 697.3 feet long, and 30 to 40 meters, or 89 to 12 feet wide. Good news! Classical Greek writers have already come to an agreement as to what an Olympia Stadium is and what an Egyptian Stadium is. The Egyptian Stadium was a little different. To normalize, we're going to use the following. One Olympia stadium is equal to 192.3 meters, or 630.9 feet. One Egyptian stadium is equal to 157.5 meters, or 516.7 feet. We have to establish which viewpoint Plato's story is being told. Is it from Solon and his notes? Or did Solon write down verbatim what the priest told him? If that's the case, then we need to use an Egyptian stadium, not a Greek stadium. Personally, I think it's Egyptian stadium, and here's why. Do you remember how I said that Solon went to Egypt and was given the story of Atlantis by Egyptian priests? Well, Solon's notes were later used in Plato's works. So let me ask you the same questions I asked myself. Who is talking in this following quote? This vast power, gathered into one, endeavored to subdue at a blow to our country, and yours, and the whole of the region within the straits, and then Solon, your country shone forth. To me, that appears that the Egyptian priest is talking to Solon. Here's another quote. Who is the you in this following sentence? And there was an island, situated in front of the straits, which are by you... Called the pillars of heracles it was called the pillars by the greeks again the egyptian priest is talking here's another example who was the us in this upcoming quote when the rest of the alliances fell athens being compelled to stand alone defeated in triumph over the invaders they preserved from slavery those who were not yet subjugated and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars By default, Athens didn't preserve itself from slavery. Well, I guess they did, but you know what I mean in this context. They, being Athens, the story coming from the perspective of us, who is not Athens or their allies, so again, the Egyptian priest. Here's another example. Who is the your in this upcoming quote? After the war between those inside the pillars and outside the pillars, There occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all of your warlike men in a body sank into the earth. Again, that your would be the Egyptian priest, talking to the Greek Solon, saying, All your warlike men, not all our warlike men. Have I beaten the dead horse enough yet? No? Okay, here's one more. To his twin brother, Gadrius, he was given the extremity of the territory towards the pillars of Heracles, facing the country which is now called Gades. The Hellenic name for him is Eumulus. So if his Hellenic name, aka Greek name, is Eumulus, then what language is Gadrius? Back to unit of measurements. I want to be inclusive, so I will specify both the Greek stadium and the Egyptian stadium. I will include the metric system as well as the imperial system. It is 2022 and we're talking about something from 2,500 years ago and we still do not have a worldwide agreed upon unit of measurement. We can't judge the ancients too harshly now, can we? First, let's establish some common vocabulary. A hectare is a unit of measurement for land that's used just about everywhere other than the United States. It's equivalent of a box of land that is 100 meters by 100 meters. So 100 times 100 is one hectare. An acre is a unit of measurement for land used in the United States. It is traditionally defined as the area of one chain by one furlong, 66 by 660 feet which is exactly equal to 10 square chains, or 1 640th of a square mile, or 4,840 square yards, or 43,560 square feet, and approximately 4,047 meters squared, or about 40% of a hectare. This, this right here, is an American exceptionalism. Do you see how much easier it would be if I could say, hey, This is an Egyptian stadium and we'll be using hectares. But alas, this next section will be sponsored by mathematics. You know, the one thing we never use in real life. So I know that we've been hinting at there's some treasure out there, or better yet, knowledge lost beneath some sand or mud, or maybe even water. Let's listen to what Plato has to say about this plain in an island in the land of Atlas. Near the center of the island, there was a fertile plain, which looked towards the sea, and at a distance of about 50 stadia, there was a mountain, not very high on any side. Using an Egyptian stadia, that would be about 8 kilometers, or 5 miles. Using Greek stadia, that would be 9.6 kilometers, or 6 miles. On with Plato. The Atlanteans dwelled in the regions on the edge of the ocean inhabited by a fertile territory. The whole country was elevated and rainy on the side of the sea, but the country immediate about and surrounding the city was a level plain. The plain was surrounded by mountains that descended towards the sea. The plain was smooth and even and of an oblong shape. Extending in one direction, 3,000 stadia, but across the center inland it was 2,000 stadia. Using an Egyptian stadia, in one direction that would be 472.5 kilometers, or 293.5 miles. The other would be about 315 kilometers, or 195 miles across the center inland. Using a Greek stadia, that would be 577 kilometers or 358.4 miles in one direction and 384.6 kilometers or 239 miles in the center inland. Back to Plato. This part of the island looked towards the south and was sheltered towards the north. The surrounding mountains were celebrated for their number, size, and beauty. Within the mountains, there were many wealthy villages of country folk. There were rivers, lakes, and meadows, Supplying food for every animal, wild or tame. There were various sorts of wood abundant for each and every kind of work. The plain was created by nature and by the labors of kings throughout many generations. The plain was, for the most part, rectangular and oblong, and there was a circular ditch at the location where the plain fell out of a straight line. The depth, width, and length of this ditch were incredible. And gave the impression that a work of such extent could never have been artificial. It was excavated to a depth of 100 feet, and its width was a stadium, a tenth of a mile, or 157 to 192 meters everywhere else. The ditch, carried around the whole plain, was 10,000 stadia in length. The streams, which came from the mountains, went around the plain and met at the city. They were led off into the sea. So where does Plato get that 10,000 from? Well, remember this. The plane was smooth and even, and of an oblong shape, extending in one direction, 3,000 stadia. But across the center inland, it was 2,000 stadia, because that canal was going all the way around the plane. So you go 3,000, 2,000, 3,000, 2,000, we now have a rectangle. Back to Plato. Further inland, straight canals of a 100 feet in width were cut through the plain and led off into the ditch leading to the sea. These canals at intervals of a 100 stadia 20 miles, 32 kilometers, were used to bring wood from the mountains to the city and conveyed the fruits of the earth in ships. Twice a year, they gathered the fruits of the earth in the winter, having the benefit of the rains, and in the summer, they introduced streams from the canals to supply water to the land. Alright, so this plain with the city would be an Egyptian rough total of 125.4196 meters squared, or 57,135 miles squared, or 14,797,897 hectares or 36,566,400 acres. That would give us about the size of Iowa or a little larger than Spain. The plane with a Greek stadia would give us a rough total of 729.5540 meters squared or 85,657 miles squared, or 22,185,061 hectares, or 54,820,480 acres, or about the size of Utah, or a little smaller than Turkey. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, Please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9pm. See you then. Wait. Are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. This is why I have a hard time with the 11,500 BCE date for the fall of Atlantis. Why make ships if you can walk on ice? Also, the evolution of ships is pretty well documented by archaeologists. I've posted a link in my episode description for you to take a look if you want to go down that rabbit hole. For this episode, Plato uses the word trireme, so I'm going to take a moment to explain what a trireme is. I haven't gone too far down the rabbit hole for ships. I peeked enough to understand the type of boat and a date that I would be looking for in the Mediterranean Sea. So according to Wikipedia, a trireme means with three banks of oars, or more literally three rower. It is an ancient vessel and type of boat that was used by the ancient marine time civilizations of the Mediterranean Sea.